Today's scripture comes from Hebrews 10, 19-25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some of you uh, will be familiar with the novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Uh, In that story, if you remember Jean Valjean, after spending 19 years in jail and in the galleys for stealing a loaf of bread because his family was starving, finally is released, but his past keeps haunting him. He comes to the village of Digne and is repeatedly refused shelter for the night until he comes to a saintly bishop who welcomes him in his home, takes him in for a meal, and Valjean repays him by stealing from him in the night and running off with a bunch of silverware into the night. The police bring him back, and the bishop protects him by pretending that the silverware was a gift. So, in a sense, the the bishop tells a pious lie, and he convinces the police that Jean Valjean has promised to reform, and um, he ends up being released. And this is kind of how the conversation goes, because he turns it around and he says, now, I'm in essence extending grace to you here in order that this will transform your life. In the musical version, which is fantastic if you haven't seen it, Um, the dialogue goes like this. It starts with the constables, and they say to Valjean, tell his reverence your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were lodging here last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintained he made a present of this silver. And the bishop says, that's right. But my friend, he turns to Valjean, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also, these candlesticks. Would you leave the best behind? So, messieurs, you may release him, for this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty and God's blessing. Go with you. And the constables go off. And he turns to Valjean and he says this, But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver, to become an honest man. And he does. This act of grace, which is so decisive, so clear, changes him. And he goes into life as a man who starts a factory and has prosperity and chooses to bless the people around him. Radical, elaborate forgiveness. 
Now, thus far in Hebrews, we have talked about the first movement of Hebrews where Jesus is exalted. He is absolutely greater than we can really imagine. He then came down to be one of us, to be incarnate. He's more humble than you thought because He has embraced us in all of our humanity and in the vulnerability of humanity in order to die for us. Last week, we looked at how Jesus then was taken from among human beings and appointed as a high priest on our behalf in order to bring us into relationship with the Father. And today, we turn to a section in the book where the author, in essence, says, if we have this appointed high priest who is superior, then he would also have a superior offering in bringing us to God. And we see that in chapter 8, verse 3, all the way through chapter 10, verse 25. And what we're going to focus on this morning is the culminating passage that we find in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, a beautiful, powerful bringing together of a lot of the themes that we have in this book to a resounding conclusion and an exhortation. Because what the author does is he focuses on this idea that Jesus is more compassionate than you dared hope. His offering is decisive in a way that will change us if we understand it. But then he turns and says, on that basis, we are to do three things. So we see Jesus. That's going to be our first point this morning. But then we draw near to God. We hold on to our confession and we encourage one another. So let's think, first of all, about this first point. We see Jesus in verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, all of this is foundational to what He's going to say in His exhortations. If you remember from the very first week in our series, I said that our perseverance in the Christian life is going to be in direct proportion to the clarity with which we see who Jesus is and what He has accomplished on our behalf. If we begin getting fuzzy about the identity of Jesus or fuzzy about the nature of the gospel, it is going to hurt our ability to hang in there in this very difficult and conflicted world. And the flip side of that coin is if we really, really understand that Jesus indeed is the Lord of the universe. He is the reigning Lord of the universe who has all power. He's going to bring this whole thing to His desired end. If we understand the extent of what He has accomplished on our behalf in the gospel and the good news, then it is going to really help us when we face the normal difficulties and challenges that we face in life. And so this uh, message this morning begins with a section where the author is talking about that. Now, we have to understand a couple of things in what he's doing here. And one of the things that we need to understand is the backdrop of this with the tabernacle 
in, um, in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament Scriptures. And you have a picture here of the tabernacle on the screen. Now, what the tabernacle was, it was a worship tent that in the Old Testament, uh, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, the tent was to be in the center of the camp. And that was, that was symbolic. God was right in the middle of things. He was the center of their lives, if you will. And God set up this process by which a holy God could live in the midst of sinful people and worked it out where there was a rhythm to the relationship, as we saw last week, where the priests were kind of media, uh, mediation agents bringing people to God on the basis of the sacrificial system. And so what we have is it moves from the outside, inside. Now, there are a lot of cool things that we could talk about here. As you move from the outside to the, the inner part of the tent, the uh, metals, for instance, got more and more precious. They moved from bronze and that kind of thing to gold as you moved uh, in, inward. There were a lot of wonderful things we could talk about here, but notice that you have sacrifice, the altar on the outside. You have kind of a place of washing for the priest, and then there's a beeline into the presence of God, and they would go into that outer uh, part of the tent. It's divided into two parts. You see the kind of uh, cutaway of the curtain about three-quarters of the way back. But they would go into that outer part of the tent day after day after day, and there was bread there on the table symbolizing their table fellowship with God. There was light. And as they were moving in, that this was just a normal daily rhythm. The second room in the back there was very special because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Um, and only the high priest could go into that room once a year on a day called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And on that day, the high priest would go into that second room and would make a very special offering that would cover all of the sins that had been committed through the past year that had not been covered by the other sacrifices. So it was a, it was a blanket, God taking care of everything that had not been dealt with to that point. So the author begins our section today by using this imagery, and he, he has in mind the sacrifices in general, but the Day of Atonement in particular, when he says that, that we have confidence. Now think about that. We have confidence to go into the holy place and into the very presence of God. And it was not like uh, the situation with the Israelites where it was only once a year and only one person could go in. Now we have confidence to go into the very presence of God because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. So look at the language that he uses here. We go in by the blood of Jesus, and the, and the blood of Jesus is just speaking about the death of Christ, that it is on the basis of Christ dying for us that we are able to go in. You think of a passage like 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Speaking about the resurrection. 
The way that Hebrews describes it here is this is a new and living way. If you go back to the worship uh, that we saw on the screen there with the tabernacle, it was primarily a way of death because you had the sacrifice of the animals. It was the base, on the basis of their death that then you would go in with the blood of that animal into the presence of God. But Jesus has died for us and then has been resurrected so that when he went into the heavenly tabernacle, he went in as the resurrected living Lord. It's a new kind of way that we've been taken into the presence of the Father, and it is a living way. It has to do with life. It has to do with life. He has gone into the very presence of the Father as our living Lord, and it is through the curtain. You remember that second curtain that had the cutaway there? The author draws a parallel between the tearing of that curtain and the tearing of Jesus' flesh. It was by His death that we have entrance into the very presence of God. I, I remember years ago, I was in a very secular setting doing biblical studies. You'd be surprised at how secular the world of, of scholarly biblical studies is. And I was there, and one of my mentors, William Lane, was being celebrated because of his work on Hebrews. And uh, he said to this really secular audience, most of whom were not believers, he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we must not forget that it is on the basis of the blood of Christ that we have entrance into the presence of God. And that was a radical statement to make in that group. But that's exactly what Hebrews is saying. It's by the death of Christ, the, the tearing of the body, just like we tear the loaf when we're having communion. Um, it's by the tearing of the body of Jesus. And I think what the author is doing here is he, he's alluding to the tearing of the veil of the temple in the Jerusalem temple. Mark 15 says that this is what happened when Jesus died. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last when he was on the cross. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this is the way he breathed his last, he said, this, this man truly was the son of God. Now in the temple at that time when Jesus died, the, the curtain in the temple was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. Some rabbinic sources suggest that the thickness of the veil was about the, the span of a hand. We don't know that that's the case, but it was, it was big. Those rabbinic sources said it took 300 priests to take that curtain and wash it because it was so big. And yet what happened on Jesus' death, you had an earthquake, Matthew tells us, and that, that veil was torn, it was ripped in two. And there are debates about exactly the significance of that. Um, but I think what it has to do with is the fact that the way has been opened for us into the presence of God, that God was establishing a new temple. And you know who the new temple is? It's us, those who are followers of Jesus, who have the Spirit of God living in us. The temple of God walks all over the planet today which is a beautiful strategy. And so what happened in the tearing of Jesus' flesh is that we are now given confidence to enter the presence of God. Now let me, let me give you an analogy that may help you understand how significant this is. Um, I teach at Regent College here in Vancouver. 
And if you go up to the president's office, you have kind of a suite of offices. His administrative assistant, Maria, is in the outer office. And then you have to go behind another door to get to the president's office. It's kind of the holy of holies of Regent College, okay? <laughs> now, uh, I go in at times. I may, I may email Maria and say, I'd, I'd like to meet with the president. Or, you know, I might even go by and say, you know, is, is uh, Jeff available right now? That kind of thing. I never barge into that outer office and say, Maria, I'm going in to see the president. Go over to his door, open it. Oh, you're with a board member. I don't care. You know, go right on in. I never do that. You know why? I like my job. <laughs> I, I do not barge in. We have in, in our uh, context in work and everything, we have a sense of propriety about what's appropriate given people's status and their positions and things like that. Do you understand that I have more of a basis to step right into the presence of the God of the universe with confidence than I do to barge into the office of the president of, of our college. That's what Christ has accomplished. This word uh, in Greek, the word for confidence there, means boldness. It could, it could speak of, of being frank in your speech, of being very open with someone, but it's, it, it's kind of a boldness. And because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we have the ability to move into the presence of God because of Jesus, because of Jesus. It has nothing to do with our own righteousness. It's the fact that He takes us into the presence of the Father. As if He's holding our hand and bringing us behind that curtain to say, this is, my, this is my person, this is my child. He, he and she, they're with me. And it gives us a, a tremendous boldness in moving into the presence of God. Which brings us to our second point, that we draw near to God. We see this in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we draw near. You remember a couple of weeks ago I said that the language here is based on the uh, Levitical system of the Old Testament, specifically the ordination of the priest in Leviticus 8 and 9. And if you go back and you look at that passage when the priests were ordained, you find this language, the exact language here of drawing near. What would happen is, if you think about that, that curtain uh, that's there on the front of the tent and you have a second curtain on the inside, what the priests would do when they were being ordained is they all came and they gathered at the entrance of the tent. They were moving into the presence of God, and, and on their ordination, they would come and they would gather as a group, and then all the Israelites would gather around to watch this very special service to say that these are the people who are going to draw near for us. They were ordained for a particular kind of ministry, which says to me that part of what the author is saying here is that you and I are called also to draw near to be in this relationship with God, but also for a purpose. 
so that we might be people who reach out to others to call them to draw near. So we are drawing near in our relationship with God. In broader Judaism of the first century, this also could be used of prayer, that we come near to God. So on the basis of what we've been talking about the last few weeks, we this morning are being called to be people who take seriously the privilege that we have to speak face-to-face, heart-to-heart, life-on-life with the living God of the universe. And he says that we can do that because we come with a true heart. The word here means sincere. It means that in this relationship with God, as we are coming before God and opening up our lives before Him and saying, you know, I have no basis to come on my own. I'm a person who fundamentally is of a sinful heart. I don't do things the way that God wants me to. But I come sincerely before you, Lord God. I want to be your person. I want to to live in this relationship that Christ has won for me. We come with our hearts just open to God, in other words, in that relationship. We come with a, a sincere heart that has been set right by what Christ is doing and has done in our hearts. And we come with full assurance of faith, the author says. Now, that may seem kind of odd to us. It it may sound strange. How can you have full assurance of faith? I mean, isn't faith, you know, our broader culture thinks of faith as kind of a leap into the dark, right? And that's based on modern philosophy, uh, a philosophy called existentialism, that, that what you do is, well, we know science and all this kind of stuff is disproven God, you know, secular thought would say, And therefore, what you have to do is kind of turn your back on all the facts and just take a leap, a blind leap, and say, oh, but I'm going to believe anyway. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not a leap into the dark. You you see that image of faith, for instance, in uh, the Indiana Jones movies. You remember the Indiana Jones movie with the Holy Grail? Remember that? And how he comes to the end of that movie uh, for those of you who maybe haven't seen it, he's searching for the, for the grail and he's following these clues and he comes to a place where the last clue is he who leaps from the lion's head will be saved. And Indy comes out and he's on this lion's head and, and he's looking down and there's this, this cavernous drop off into nothing. And so he reads the clue as saying, well, what you got to do? You got to have faith. You got to have faith. You got to have faith. And so what does Indiana Jones do? He shuts his eyes and he goes... And he steps off into nothing, but there's something there. It's a path that he couldn't see before. It's because it's camouflaged with the rocks. And so he had faith. He stepped off into nothing. Folks, that is not biblical faith. Thank the Lord that is not biblical faith, right? Biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. It's a step into the light. 
It's a stepping out on what God has revealed to be true about himself in this world. Jesus Christ has come in flesh and blood and in the midst of history has accomplished things and and brought about a witness to who he is and what he has accomplished in this world. And he's been in the process of transforming and building his church for the last 2,000 years. And He has given us His Word, which is objective and true and solid that we can stand on. And we come in full assurance of faith because we know what Christ has done on our behalf. And it's again, it's not based on who we are and what we can accomplish. It's based on the fact that God has sent His Son into the world to die for people like us and to put us into right relationship with God. And we come with full assurance of faith because of the superior offering that Jesus has made on our behalf. We have had our hearts sprinkled clean, the text says. Titus 3, 5, and 6 reads, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have been cleansed decisively. And what this passage is saying is that if you are a part of the new covenant, every sin you've ever committed and every sin you ever will commit has already been decisively dealt with by the sacrifice of Christ. Decisively. And of course, we're linear creatures, so as we go through life, it's appropriate for us to agree with God about our sin, to confess to one another, all of that. But the reality is, if you are a new covenant person, The reality of your relationship with God is decisively provided for in the person and the death of Christ. And if that ever gets a hold of you, if you ever really, really grasp that, it will not lead you to kind of a cavalier attitude that will say, well, I guess I can just do whatever I want to then, sin. No, what it will do is it will make you take sin more seriously because you you realize the enormity of what has been accomplished for you. And if you can have that kind of cavalier attitude that says, well, I guess I can sin all I want to, it it probably is saying something about you that's terrifying spiritually, that you really don't understand what's going on here. So our sins have been dealt with. We have been cleansed. Uh, One of my heroes is Jim Elliott and his wife, uh, Elizabeth Elliott, and Jim and some other men were martyred by a tribe in the Amazon jungle. And one of his colleagues who was killed was a guy named Nate Saint. The amazing thing about that story is that some of the family members ended up going back to the Waodani tribe and led them to Christ and then ministered to them for decades the very ones who had killed their family members, they went back and led them to Christ. Nate Saint is uh, uh, Nate Saint's son Steve was asked about the history of reconciliation that happened between his family and this tribe, the Woyadani. 
and asked if there was a specific moment of reconciliation. And he said, you know, it was a developing thing over time. But I think a point of reconciliation that really was significant was when one of the men in the tribe, Menkaye, the man who killed Steve's father, and his aunt Rachel had an encounter. In her journal, she once wrote, Tonight when I was sleeping in the hammock, I heard a noise and somebody was walking around in the dark. Minkaye called out to her and squatted by her fire wanting to talk. He said, You said that Wangogi, the Creator, is very strong. And Rachel said, Minkaye, he is very strong. He made everything here, even the dirt. Minkaye said, you said that he could clean somebody's heart. My heart being very, very dark, can he clean even my heart? Now remember, this is the guy who killed her brother. Aunt Rachel said, being very strong, he can clean even your heart. She wrote that Menkaye got up and walked away, but the next morning he came back excited. He said, Star, what you said is true. Speaking to God, He has cleansed my heart. Now, it's Watamo. It's clear like the sky with no clouds. That was the real beginning of reconciliation, Steve Saint said. Cleansing does not mean that we no longer struggle with sin. We do as followers of Christ, don't we? We still struggle. But the cleansing means that we have been transformed by the Spirit, put into this relationship with God where our sins are no longer a barrier between us and God. And we live a life of discipleship, learning how to walk well in the ways of God, even as God is working on us to grow us in living effectively for him. This brings us to the third point, and that is we hold on to our confession. So we draw near, we hold on to our confession in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, Hebrews, as we said earlier, was written to a, a community of people who are undergoing persecution. So if you think of the drawing near as their relationship with God and the need to draw near to Him, their holding on, in a sense, was as they interfaced with a hostile world. And the confession here is could in that time be used of something that was spoken. It could be used of Christian teaching. But I think what he's talking about here is holding on to this this public stance, this bold public stance that said, yes, Jesus is my Lord and I live for Him. And so this dynamic of holding on is used figuratively here. It could be a, a word that was used literally, but it's used figuratively to speaking of hanging on to our joint relationship of being Christ's people in the world and being bold about that, being open about that. Being people who hang on to our confession of hope. And he says that we do this without wavering. The term could be used of something that, that bent with the wind. 
Um, this term for wavering, something like a reed that was blown in the wind. Um, so to hang on to our faith without wavering in the face of the things that are hitting us in life means that there is a stability that we have, not, again, in ourselves, but in what Christ has done in our lives and in our community. Um, when I think about this idea of not wavering, we... we um, built an, uh, a house on an old home place back in Tennessee 25 years ago now. And when we had gotten the house built, I put a mailbox out on the street. We actually have mailboxes uh, in that part of the world. And I, I um, do we have mailboxes here? I guess we do somewhere. But anyway, never, never mind all that. So um, I had gone out and I dug this hole that was three feet deep. And that was quite a thing because they had had rock that was put down for the road and it was right next to the road. So I had to dig down through rock. And I got this, this big post that I sunk in there and I, I put concrete in it and it was just, it was just solid. And there was this um, type of mailbox that you could get where the mailbox itself that was made out of this really, really hard rubber, it was attractive, but it was something that just kind of slid over that pole and then you, you uh, screwed it into the pole. So this whole thing was just like a tank. I mean, it was just solid. And there were some guys that, you know, were being teenage boys who got into their minds it would be a really fun thing to go and smash people's mailboxes. And uh, so in our, in our broader area, we lived kind of out in a rural area, and in our broader area, I was talking to our mailman one day, and he said, yeah, 60 mailboxes have been destroyed. And one night they came by, and they hit my mailbox. And what they were doing is they were leaning out of a car with a, with a baseball bat and hitting the mailbox. I wish I could have seen <laughs> them hit my mailbox, because it would have been like, some of you remember the old Wiley Coyote cartoons where he goes, he hits, like that. Because I could tell they hit it because it moved the top of the mailbox about a sixteenth of an inch, you know. <laughs> it, that thing wasn't going anywhere. There was a stability about it. Now, where do we have our stability? How can we hang on to our confession without wavering? Well, we do it when we understand a relationship with the one who is really the living Lord of the universe. It's not the powers around us that feel like, it feels like they're in control, but they're not. And when we have perspective that Jesus Christ really is the Lord of the universe, and that the temporal dynamics and powers around us are that, they're temporal, they're not going to last, that gives us a sense of stability. When we understand that our perseverance in the faith is not grounded in our ability, it's grounded in the work of Christ by the Spirit in our lives, and it's in community. Notice this is all plural. It's speaking to us as a body, not us as individuals. Now, we have to live it out individually, but we also live it out as a body we can hang in there in the faith and hold on to our confession because we do that together. And we do that without wavering. 
I got, uh, when we lived in that house back in Tennessee, one night at about 11 o'clock in the evening, I got a call um, and someone said, George, John and Brenda's house is on fire. John was a doctor. Uh, John and Brenda were two of the godliest people that we've known. They were kind of like surrogate grandparents to our kids. And, um, and they lived in this large, beautiful home. And when I got to their house, there was a whole host of people who were out there in their front yard. And John and Brenda were sitting in lawn chairs watching everything that they owned go up in flames. And there were people from their neighborhood all around and a lot of people there from the church. And Brenda looked back and she saw me get out of the car and walking toward her and she, she kind of motioned me over. And when I came over to her, I leaned down and she said, George, pray. Because a lot of these people are our neighbors who don't know Christ and they need to see how believers go through something like this. I don't know that I would have had that response. But here was the most devastating event of their lives. And she was thinking about the kingdom. She was solid. She was focused on what was really important to her. Now again, it doesn't mean that we don't weep and mourn. We, we do that with difficulties and tragedies that we face. But we have the ability to hang in there even in the face of great difficulties in life. Because we have a body and a community that we live among who help us with that. And that brings us to our final point, And that is that we encourage one another. Look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us be concerned. Let us consider. He, he, he is saying here, stop and think about how you can accomplish encouraging one another stir up one another how can you stir up one another this word could be used uh, either negatively or positively in the ancient world it could be used negatively as if you're stirring up something you remember when your kids were small those of you who have kids some of you are living in the middle of this kids are in the back seat and they're poking at one another stop you know, and it just kind of gets out of control, and finally you pull the car over and you say, Look, guys, you gotta get it together here. You know, that kind of thing. Well, that that's a negative form of stirring up. But what he's talking about here is something that is is very positive. Things are being stirred up in the body because we're we're relating to others who challenge us in our faith. They challenge us to love and to, to good deeds. There was a guy in our church uh, back in Tennessee named Larry Butler, and Larry was one of the greatest servants I've ever known. He was a businessman, had a trust company um, in a small town near where and he was a guy who 
just at the drop of the hat. If somebody had a tree fall on their house, he was there to help kind of cut that up and take care of it. He had equipment over there. You know, he was always just there serving others. Um, that is not natural to me. I need people to challenge. I'm, I'm wanting to be in my head and thinking about stuff and, you know, doing stuff in my office, whatever. Larry challenged me to just start being more open and aware of the needs around me because that's just the pattern of life that he had. And what he's saying here is that we need to live among one another in a way that, that really promotes love and good deeds among us. And then he, he adds this really important point, not staying away as is the habit of some. We can't encourage one another if we're not regularly together in community. Now, let me, let me just say a word here about coming out of our COVID context. We, we understandably have been through one of the most massive social transformations in the history of the world. And one of the effects that that has had on the church has been there have been a lot of people who've kind of gotten used to doing church in their pajamas. And they're saying, you know, we can roll over, hang out right here on the couch. And we kind of like that because we kind of wrap up. We don't have to drive 30 minutes and then we have lunch together and we have the rest of the day and that's cool. But let me tell you something, folks. There is a reason why we need to be life on life, face to face, sitting next to each other walking together where we can have relationships and table fellowship and that kind of thing because we cannot encourage one another if we're not here. And I want to I not get on to you. I want to just encourage you lovingly to say, come back, not only because you need us, because, but because we need you. You have gifts and you have life and you have experience that this body needs. And so please, let's kind of make choices, transition back to a place where we are here and we're present and we're loving each other in very practical ways of giving encouragement to one another by just showing up and having quick conversations. You never know what that three-minute conversation in the aisle here is going to do in terms of the encouragement you give to somebody else. And we need to be people who are doing that, living together. Eugene Peterson writes, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. And we are fully ourselves as we are functioning in a body together. I love the story of a guy named Richard Dahlstrom went rock climbing with a friend, Kevin. And Kevin was a more experienced climber and, and on this particular occasion he was acting as the belayer or the one who was supposed to protect Dahlstrom from plummeting to the ground if he fell. He says, on this particular climb, Dahlstrom was exhausted and 
ready to give up, so he politely asked Kevin to help him get back to the ground. But Kevin refused. Here's how Dahlstrom describes the scene. Falling, I shout, and Kevin put a brake on the rope. After a few feet, I came to a stop. I was hanging, spinning around while new blood delivered uh, recovery energy to my fingers and my spent arm. I'm finished. Lower me down. This is the part where the belayer is supposed to lower you to the ground and congratulate you on a good try. Instead, Kevin said, I'm not lowering you. You can climb that rock. I said, very funny. Lower me, please. I'm not being funny, he said, laughing. You can climb that. I continued to spin, hanging from the rope about 45 feet in the air. Try it again. Who is this person telling me what I can and can't do? Friends don't let friends dangle in midair, do they? But then he tightened the rope. He got me to the point where I could get back on the rock and I climbed the rock. He said, Kevin saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. He encouraged me until I finished well. Good friends do that. Folks, we need each other in the body of Christ and we have a phenomenal foundation in who Jesus is and what He has accomplished on our behalf. So let's draw near Let's hold fast and let's encourage one another. Let's stand as we respond to God's word this morning.